0: I hope what you learned from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So, thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non renewable resource that you've got. That's your time. So, once again, thanks for tuning in to Suncast. Late last year, KWH Analytics released a report titled 2020 Solar Risk Assessment, suggesting that recent assessments of the solar industry's pre-construction production estimates have found evidence of an industry-wide bias towards aggressive predictions, noting that when a typical solar project performs at the official P90, then equity cash yield drops by 50%. If you don't know what that means, you're gonna wanna stick around because this revelation has the potential to impact cash flows across the industry as these over-optimistic assumptions are netting a measured underperformance, usually about 2% on the P50 revenue. Today, we're gonna offer you an opportunity to learn from three highly experienced solar experts on the past, present, and future of solar project financing. Heidi Larson is with ICF International, Hao Shen is with KWH Analytics and Skip Dice is with Clean Power Research. And today we touch on how to know what your solar projects really worth. What does bankability actually mean? And what's the difference between these common solar finance terms I just mentioned, P50 and P90? How in fact does turning the dials, so to speak on the financial model actually affect the overall project outcomes and what data does or perhaps should be going into these models to ensure that we're not overshooting our valuations. Are there underperforming assets in your portfolio? If you're a project owner, you're likely bleeding equity and you don't even know it. As one of the guests says, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. So I hope today that you learn some of the critical elements to success and how we need to evolve as an industry. If you'd like what you hear, please subscribe to the show, rate and review if you're in iTunes, Give us a thumbs up, whatever platform you're on. And uh, also by subscribing, that'll ensure you don't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out nearly 400 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, let's get started with you, Heidi. ICF is a global consultant services firm relied upon by the largest IPPs in the industry. And independent engineering is kind of the bastion of, as I said, the black box that's often referred to as the model that underwrites the performance of the assets. You know, for the sake of this conversation, uh, for any listener that's entirely clear, we're going to, by and large, be talking about the data sets and the risk assumptions that are made around utility scale assets and uh, the success long term of the underlying uh, sort of investment in those assets is determined by some assumptions, some data and decisions that are made many months often before the asset is built. And the performance of the asset then defines whether or not there was success. So there's this, there's this handoff. As an independent engineering firm, ICF is often, uh, you know, partnering, handholding with developers, big banks, etc. For us on the outside, this whole process does look kind of like a, ba- a black box. So Heidi, I'd like to ask if you could help, help me kind of open the lid and peer inside of how much of this works, in particular by perhaps starting with your view on what bankability really means from the perspective of an engineering firm.
1: Sure. So I think bankability... Um, From the independent engineering perspective, Nico, is understanding the technical risks and quantifying them so that you can either come up with technical or commercial mitigants to structure around those risks.
0: And how do you think about structuring around those risks? Do you categorize them in any particular way?
1: Sure. So we generally break down an IE review into three components, the commercial, the technical, and the environmental. And ultimately, the review of all three of those areas is done for the purposes of commenting on the technical inputs for the pro forma, which drive the decisions of the financial stakeholders.
0: Heidi, thank you for that insight. I'd like to skip over to Hal for a second and ask from uh, you know the data analyst's perspective, how does bankability make its way into your day-to-day, you deal a lot with, with risk and risk avoidance. Uh, so, so how do your clients think about bankability, and how do you sort of associate with it? Absolutely. Thanks, Nico. Uh,
2: glad to be here with Skift and Heidi on the podcast. Um, absolutely agree with the breakdown that Heidi um, laid out for us from commercial, technical, and environmental risk. I would say KWH Analytics, uh, we're hyper-focused on that kind of technical and production risk um, and we have tools in the market to help with that risk management. Um, and the key thing for us um, on the data side is leveraging Doric operating data as a means to improve the way that we understand that production risk to help move bankability to more certain standards um, as the asset class evolves.
0: Thanks, Hal. We'll circle back around to some of, the, some of the things that you said there because they're extremely interesting for me. Uh, but you mentioned production risk, and you know one of the companies that is best known in the industry for supporting production analysis is Clean Power Research. Uh, Skip, you guys have been around for ages providing the underlying data for the yield analysis. Can you talk a bit from CPR's perspective about how data is used within the construct of bankability?
3: Yeah, yeah, sure, uh, Nico. You, you're making uh, you're making me sound old. Uh, I don't feel <laughs> that old, uh, but uh, but yeah, uh, you know, e- even more detailed than diving diving even even deeper in, into this process, and, and hopefully, this shed some light on on the element of the solar resource data, which is really the fuel that goes into this particular asset. We have been focused on delivering data that supports this this bankability assessment and. We actually came up with a, a framework that, that we think defines it really well. And hopefully, to the purpose of our discussion today, kind of demystifies some of, of what's what's happening. But we think that you know, in the course of doing this over as many years as we've been doing this, the bankable aspects of the data that you're using – They need to have uh, validation and and acceptance. So people like Heidi, uh, who are doing doing the the due diligence here, do they have a good understanding? Can we provide them with a a really deep technical understanding of how the data is generated and how it's validated? Do we quantify the uncertainty? That's number two. Is there a long history, right? We know these assets are going out for a long period of time. We want to be validating the data over a long period of time. We're at a point now where there's a lot of assets out in the field, and are we we actually measuring at the site of the, the the asset location? So are we doing things in a in a very precise way? And then most importantly, this is a big industry now. We we build this product for solar, so uh, using data that that is specifically designed for the purpose that we're talking about here, which is is raising capital.
0: Skip, you said something I've never heard anybody say before, uh, and I just want to parrot your words, that the solar irradiance data is the fuel that goes into these models that Howe and Heidi were talking about. I think that's a really <laughs> novel way to think about it because, in fact, you know, it's a free fuel. The sun shines, but many folks aren't really clear on how the irradiance data is calculated and gathered despite the fact that they are using you know, this uh, data inside of PVSYST and other modeling tools. Can you help sort of shine some light on what that like how, how that data comes about?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So within the space of that resource measurement, there's a couple of different ways. So we're we're sitting here on the ground and we can look up and I yeah, don't look into the sun. Uh that's number one. But we can look up and we can we can recognize that the sun is is shining. So you can measure from the ground up. But to do this in a really scalable way, we've developed a, a technique to do this from the top down. Uh, and what you can't see, which is up in the sky floating above us, are these, these uh, weather satellites. And there's five that circle the globe. And so we take image data and we look at the reflectance of the, the sun uh, that's captured by the satellites that's reflecting off off the earth. Uh, we can measure the clouds that way. We can measure the the spatial relationship of the clouds. And again, it's really important to do this in a scalable way because we're, we're no longer just developing like we were maybe 10 years ago, developing a handful of projects in the U.S. We're doing this on rooftops. We're doing this in commercial buildings and even in the utility scale sector. There's Hundreds of projects that are, are being worked on, uh, and how yeah, and Heidi probably know better than I do, but it's I would guess even into the thousands in the u s and certainly globally uh, this is this is a, a, a
0: big investment class now fantastic I appreciate that Heidi you mentioned that uh, you sort of break this down into three big buckets when we think about this complex model financial model that you all are in many ways informing, helping uh, defend for a project, a big project to be considered bankable enough and risk assured enough that it can be built. With respect to where ICF sort of most leans in, the technical review, you talk about the technical inputs. Uh, I call it a black box. I've heard you say it's more kind of like a, a music station where you're dialing knobs up and back. But help me Understand how all of this goes into a pro forma and guides investment decisions for the financial stakeholders, because at the end of the day, bankability is about taking these inputs and making a decision on the yield, the expected sort of yield of a project and whether or not it's going to, if the numbers are going to pencil.
1: One of the critical inputs to the financial model is the expected performance. You're the radio guy, but, you know, you can think of it as kind of (laughs) like a a music, a a soundboard, right? There's a lot of dials and knobs that can be turned. And it starts with selection, as Kit mentioned, of of high-quality validated solar resource data. Then we develop a PV performance model, usually using Syst. And then we take that data and we post-process it for operational realities, things like availability. With any model, we need to be aware of garbage in, garbage out, and we need to not only be focused on the individual inputs and knobs, but how the overall sound quality, what the overall result is, and, and how reasonable and defensible that is. And so, you know, the, the PV performance model, that middle part, is is often where we receive the comments about it being. A, black box And, and it's not intentional to be obscure. Uh, But it is in part perceived that way because it's a somewhat complex analysis. And if we just take that middle part and and use pv for example, there are assumptions. And a lot of times those assumptions are derived from submodels, external submodels, for example, for soiling, and then internal submodels to pv for taking the irradiance data from SCIP and converting that to what fuel is going to be received on the surface of the modules.
0: You said something, I, I tr- I'm i going to try to disintermediate complex topic here for folks that maybe are coming at this from square one. Post-processing the data for operational realities sounds like engineering jargon to me. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, so we have this this complex model of the PV system and we get an output. But there are aspects of that performance model that, that – are real to the world, but may not be built into the model. So we have to take the output from that performance model, and we have to adjust it for things like expected system downtime, Mm -hmm. or limits at the point of interconnection. And so we, we process that data. And ultimately, our goal, Nico, is to arrive at a P50, right? Something that we know performance is going to be not P50 in any given mm-hmm. year, but that P50 is meant to represent the long-term average. So you have equal number of years above and below this estimate that's informing a financial model.
0: Okay, what does the P mean in P50? I've heard P50, P90, even like in years where we assume a volcanic eruption clouds the earth, it's P99. Like, what does that mean?
1: So the P is meant to represent probability. So P50 means... Makes sense. Middle, you know, the the if you're on a scale to zero to 100, or zero to 99, the P50 is meant to represent the median. Yeah. Um, a P90 is meant to represent a value that you believe can be exceeded 90 percent of the time. P50 being a value you can exceed 50 percent of the time. The other 50 percent of the time, you'd be below that.
0: You know, a lot of the conversation we've been having with Heidi around data crunching and understanding the terms bankability, P50, etc ties well to an interesting analysis that How has worked on with KWH Analytics, studying the accuracy of long-term PV forecasts against actual production. How I'd love to hear how this analysis turned out. What did you learn, and what were you going in looking for to begin with? Thanks, Joe. Yeah, to help independent power producers and
2: investors assess the state of the U.S. solar fleet, We collaborated with 10 of the industry's largest asset owners to aggregate around 30% of the operating assets and analyze their plant performance compared to their expected production. This P50 number or baseline performance expectation that Heidi mentioned earlier. And we ended up analyzing operating data between 2016 and 2019. And from there, also worked with Skip and the Clean Power Research Team to use their Solar Anywhere Irradiance data set to weather adjust this historic performance so that we could isolate out the impact of weather. And this all culminated in the inaugural publication of the Solar Generation Index. Um, This report's available on our website for those that want to dig further. But the the short summary is we identified some significant performance gaps between the expected output of PV assets and their actual performance.
0: So how the, just so I'm clear, the Solar Generation Index, this is a report that came out roughly when? Uh, October, 2020. Okay, so the fall of 2020, and the intention was to take a look at, for example, the kinds of performance indicators that uh, Heidi was mentioning, where to get a system built, you look at expected output of the PV asset, P50, P90, did what we in the industry have been looking at behind the scenes for a while, what the actual performance is. I'm eager to hear what the results were. Yeah,
2: two key findings that, that we found. First is, as an industry, we're seeing a significant delta between the estimated energy used during the pre-construction and financing stage and how plants are actually performing in the ground. Our analysis on 30% of the operating fleet showed that on average systems are underperforming by 6.3% to their P50 number. And again, that's the median underperformance. Hmm. The second thing I'd mention is that this Delta, it varies across technologies, uh, asset owners and regions of the US, some performing better or worse.
0: So it begs the question, are we as an industry, as some have suggested, over predicting expected performance, perhaps for the benefit of you know, the financing or the project development approvals? Or is there some underlying existential threat from an asset management perspective that, you, that maybe we'd need to take a look at? Yeah, exactly, Nico. I think that's the key question. So in terms of why
2: this is occurring, I mean, you can see this phenomenon as either an underperformance issue or an overestimation issue. And it's kind of two sides of the same coin. However, while they can both simultaneously be true, depending on which part is really driving that deviation, that gap, you would diagnose the problem differently, right? So we at KWH have come to the conclusion that it's more of an overestimation issue than an underperformance issue. And we base that conclusion on trends that we see in the data, where this gap, this deviation against P50 is actually getting worse over time. While in reality, the technology we use, the management practices that we have in the field should theoretically be improving. When we talk with folks as well in the wind industry, they echo the same sentiment of this kind of aggressive modeling overestimation that led to a lot of the underperformance of the wind fleet in the
0: U.S. back in the early 2010s. You mentioned the wind fleet. And, you know, at least in Texas and certainly down in Mexico as well, uh, you know, a common word that we're seeing trickle into the solar vernacular is this, ta- this term curtailment. I'd like, first of all, for those maybe who don't understand, could you define curtailment? And then I'd love to hear from your perspective, what about external factors like curtailment that could be impacting the these returns? Can't, I don't want to leave some of these things off the table thing that uh, can definitely impact the, the performance of an asset or whether it's
2: available to produce energy. From a general definition perspective, curtailment is when there's an external requirement for a generating facility to go offline. Some potential examples can be if there are uh, adjustments on the grid by the independent uh, operator there to pr- provide fixes on the line um, or other requirements that would require a generating facility to go offline for a number of hours or days.
0: So uh, I'm going to circle back with Heidi in a second, but I'd love to know how, I mean, part of the work product that KWH Analytics provides helps developers to you know, at least anticipate or deal with these kinds of fluctuations in asset performance, if I'm not mistaken. What sort of, uh, of expected outcomes from your research and the additional data that we're finding should developers really be thinking about as they're as they're modeling their plants and thinking about asset management with this information in mind
2: the analysis indicates that there are potential improvements in the way that we model energy today and one of the solutions that we're working on to address some of these shortcomings is really leveraging our industry performance database to produce comparables for solar assets Uh essentially using objective operating data from similarly designed assets in the field as market comps to validate the assumptions and performance risk for new systems. And if you it.
0: I love the way I just want to jump in and say I love how you are at least within your product team you guys continually find common standard references like comps. I've never heard anybody mention comps for uh, solar data. So this is really this is really interesting. I've heard, you know, on the residential side uh, it's kind of the equivalent of a FICO score. But it sounds like uh, we're getting to the point now where one solar project or a neighborhood of regional solar projects can provide similar data set values.
2: Exactly. And if you think about it, market comps are ubiquitous in other asset classes. And we see it as a natural and inevitable maturation for solar to get here as well. And essentially what it does is it begins to create a data feedback loop of using operating data to inform our underlying modeling assumptions. Mm -hmm. So to your point, Nico, you know, If we're developing the 101st utility scale project in North Carolina, and there are 100 other in the ground already, well, we should be using data from those that are in the field now to help improve the way that we model the next one that we build.
0: You know, I believe project developers really are the unsung heroes of the energy sector. And it's high time we had our own project management software built for us, by us, Email dropbox ms project you know they might help you get by but truly in a post-covid 19 world we need to move faster online with decades of experience moving projects from idea to operation our friends at Enion know firsthand just how painful it can be relying on generalist software to get projects over the line so i'd like to encourage you to give Enion project manager a try for free today. Enjoy enhanced security and cooperation with your entire team. Centralize your tasks, teams, files, and financials all in one secure place. Deliver more projects fast and at a lower cost. Go sign up today for free at ww.n-n-en-i-an-dot-co. You know, it's not lost on me that one of the... Uh, you know, one of the primary benefits that uh, KWH Analytics provides for developers is a way to counterbalance the the uncertainties in the revenues from a project. We haven't talked exactly to you, you know, you talked about the yields, but what does this say for your for a solar developer who is trying to really figure out what does this mean for my business and um, and and where do you see those numbers falling? Because this is just the median numbers, I understand that.
2: That's right. As a as an asset owner or an equity owner in solar, it's important to understand the volatility of your cash flows. And at least this analysis exposed that the median performance was about 6% below your, your baseline expectations. Yeah. And what we'd see from the bottom quartile of projects, the bottom 25%, are actually underperforming greater than 10%. Um, wow. And that's a direct hit to an
0: equity owner. That's really insightful, Hal. You know, it, it occurs to me there's a lot of projects right now that are changing hands, a lot of uh, new owners picking up assets as we experience con- uh, consolidation in the industry, M&A in the industry, uh, a, lot, a lot of activity that with developers who are relatively new to the industry selling assets because they have found, you know, good interconnection points. But, you know, as a former project developer, it seems to me like there's probably a ton of equity Bleeding out of these projects, and you know that comes right back to uh, the whole concept of bankability, and are the is the, are the numbers right? So I'd like to throw it back to Heidi for a moment. You know, Heidi, I'd love your interpretation of the data that you see coming from the study that Hal mentioned. Um, you know, what's your view on how this it would it could potentially impact developers moving forward?
1: So, the solar generation Index, I think, brings to the to the front an, an interesting fact and the gap between expected and and realized performance. And as Hal said, I think closing that feedback loop is important. But the next step in my mind is to really understand the reasons why and determine what of those reasons can be controlled. You know, something in our work that's important to keep in mind is, Thinking through the pro forma and the P50 generation input is is one important input, but there may be others too. And so things like uh, curtailment, availability, and other haircuts that are assumed by the project financial counterparties also need to be rolled up and, and taken into consideration. You know, the the other piece of it, speaking to Hal's point on two sides of the same coin, there's the estimated estimation of expected performance, and then there's the actual operation of the facilities. And from an independent engineering perspective, when we develop a pre-construction generation estimate, there are a number of assumptions that go into that estimate itself, as well as into the pro forma more broadly, like I just mentioned. The backside of it is um, understanding those critical assumptions through the life of the project and making sure at the onset that everybody involved in the transaction is aware of those and can manage to those so the desired financial results can be realized.
0: I'd like to spend a minute just talking a bit more about the assumptions, as we mentioned all along. You know, a lot of the pre-construction build assumptions that the financial model takes into consideration are informed by different uh, different inputs. One of the key inputs of that is the solar resource data. So, no one better than Skip Dice from Clean Power Research to talk a bit about that for us. Skip, I'd love your perspective on what you are seeing uh, with regard to assumptions, how the solar resource data is being used and uh, maybe where the general consciousness around solar resource data is evolving in the in the in the marketplace right now
3: a couple of things just going back to earlier in our discussion the the idea that this is the fuel source mm-hmm. and that fuel source is is variable and that variability is tied to the cash flow uh, so not only the performance of the plant but also just the, the variability between years in the solar resource at your project location is going to have have uh, that sort of impact especially on the, the the investors that are holding equity in your uh, in your project another thing and 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 look you know a lot of engineers listening on this call uh, I I will go back to probably my first day in in my first college engineering course you got to look at not only the the average but you got to or the measurement but you got to look at the uncertainty and that's that's a big topic that relates to not only the performance prediction, but also the solar resource. That's something that that we've been focused on and studying over over time, even going back to early days in the industry when the NREL TMY3 data sets were being used. Even somewhat, if you read the manual, and you know a lot of the engineers listening to hopefully uh, have, have read the TMY3 manual, in nowhere in that NREL recommendation does it say, use this for solar project finance. So let's just get that out on the table, that mm-hmm. plenty of money was thrown at something that it wasn't supposed to be thrown at. That's one just example of how the industry has matured in its thinking about the fuel source and using different inputs on the fuel source. Uh, now, look, we we generate a, a product that helps project financiers understand the value from a fuel from a solar radiance uh, perspective, and and our not only are we learning more on the production side, as highlighted by Hal, but we're also learning more on the solar resource side of things, where you can't get away with today if you brought a TMY three to to a project to to Heidi, uh, she'd probably. Turn you around and say, "Look, you can't. We're we're not going to be able to support that sort of analysis. If it doesn't have the right level of uncertainty that investors are going to want to see. Uh, and you can't be just using the median of resource. The industry's just gotten too sophisticated on that. So the more we learn on how to accurately predict the plant performance." you know my my team we're trying to figure out how to do that on their solar resource side of the the business as well so that we can stay in step with uh, our need to make sure that that these project valuations are are uh, you know a, a, in a place where they they can be trusted by by the investor
1: yeah i would just build on what skip's saying and and echo that step number 1 us from an ie perspective is really to make sure any more that we're starting with a site specific high quality solar resource data set you know whether that's satellite derived from algorithms or that's augmented with a ground measurement campaign I think finance and uncertainty can be structured and quantified with either of those approaches but you know our opinion is that's really best practice in the, the current industry standard.
3: And as a notion of the, the comps uh, idea from from how on the production side, effectively, that's what we need to be looking at in a, in a breakdown of the resource, the solar resource. Uh, that's something that we, we generate. It's effectively a, an accuracy comp against public ground measured stations, but then other parts of that, that production model, those, those different uh, factors or dials that get put into place. I see a lot of value being generated for the investor. The, the more we know about each one of those, either regional or technology-specific, you know, or, or EPC-specific as well, you know, who, who can build a great plant, who can operate it correctly, and, uh, and what sort of technology are we putting in the ground?
0: Well, I appreciate the level of detail, uh, and we could easily go for uh, an hour or more into the depths of the you know, the details, as we call it in the black box, and how to unpack and help folks understand the different dials, as Heidi put it, that can be turned. But ultimately, this data is instructive for how we should not just look backwards, but forwards. You know, I'd like to spend some time wrapping the conversation, kind of looking at the gaps, How are we solving for the areas where we see perhaps data weaknesses or uh, assumptions that need corrective action? And really, what does a win look like for the industry? And I want to do it sort of in reverse order thinking. So if we think about data, finance, and engineering as key roles in the success of a solar asset, which implicitly, as the largest generation source uh, predicted by 2050 in the United States— is a big piece of, of equity return that our financial institutions are banking on. If we're looking at 2021 in the rear view mirror from 2025, you know, we've, we've made it for nearly five years out from now. What have we done successfully to alleviate concerns that perhaps Heidi, you have or how that you have that have surfaced when you look beyond just Uh, The resource file, perhaps, to the equipment selection, the O&M, the design. How have we set projects up for success moving forward? And what were the factors necessary?
2: On the positive side, there's tremendous awareness building in industry and collaboration with other risk experts and thought leaders like Clean Power Research and ICF. I think the next step is really applying that evidence and world-class forecasting data to our approaches to asset valuation and, and asset management. Um, I think I'd like to highlight what Heidi mentioned earlier is really doing the homework of identifying the drivers of underperformance as a way to help uh, reduce the uncertainty of returns. I think it's inevitable that the industry begins using better data to shine a spotlight of any modeling inaccuracies that we have. And it's really data that exposes the truth. And I think smart money will eventually demand better and more certain returns from it.
1: So, I think from the independent engineering standpoint, in five years, I'm going to be really proud of how well this industry has closed the feedback loop. And taking the the data and the maturing of the industry, not only to understand the findings that the Solar Generation Index brought forward with regard to underperformance, but understanding why that underperformance exists and how we can make corrections not only on the P50 generation estimates put forward pre-construction, but also understanding all of the other assumptions that go into a financial model related to that P50 input so that we can collectively manage those assumptions and achieve the financial outcomes that are desired.
0: Heidi, just so I want to make sure I'm really clear and that we don't leave anyone stranded on this idea, when you say fo- close the feedback loop, can you help me with practical example?
1: Sure. So, Nico, one of the our main roles as a consultant is to help our clients understand the data points and the technical information in the industry to help them inform their investment decisions. And a a recent discussion we just had with a client was, I've read the solar generation index. Do I need to be taking a 6% haircut on all of my, my future investments? Projects are just underperforming by that much, right, ICF? And I think the answer is, and and the point that I just want to reiterate is is that's a very important data point. It it shouldn't be ignored, but we need to take the next step in the industry to understand the why and the how that result has has come to be. And and in this example, I think it's important to understand that if you're comparing to P50 generation, which the solar generation index tells us we missed by, by a median of 6%, that's one of the important inputs that go into the pro forma, but not the only. There are things like curtailment and availability that are also inputs to the pro forma, but are sometimes separate from the P50 generation. And then when we start correcting for those, even after correcting for solar resource, we maybe correct 2% for curtailment or another 1% for availability. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden that's 6% under performance is is really maybe only three percent or less, which is is mm-hmm. far less scary. And I'll just take a moment to to point out that one of the the areas where our team has been doing an increasingly uh, an increasing amount of work is specific to actual and expected production. When we take the deep dives on project performance, we do find in unconstrained, uncurtailed proper periods of performance. Generation models are actually very good at predicting expected performance. It's when we have operational issues or we have curtailment issues that we start to see things go sideways. And and ultimately those impact revenue. So we need to think about and understand those. But again, it goes back to the underlying assumptions and, and stripping out what we know can be controlled and how we control it, structure deals around it versus the things that are are uncontrollable and then we just need to plan for.
0: Well, Skip Dice, uh, we're going to bring it on home with you. I'd love to get your perspective five years on. Are we evolving this industry and moving forward?
3: Yeah, so looking back in a five-year period, uh, it's 2025. Wow, from the resource perspective and our area of expertise, I would say there were no projects Looking back now, five years, there's no projects that have used the NREL data or the the median approach to solar resource. That's because in the course of that five years, the developers, the engineers, and the financiers have have uh, increased their, their understanding around the uncertainty that 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 causes, and and smart money just won't won't buy that anymore, hmm. uh, and that is going to be a huge step forward in just reduce, continue to reduce the costs of bringing these types of projects to market. Uh, we're already feeling that tailwind behind getting to scale in this industry. And that's, that's just going to keep pushing, pushing that forward. So as data around the production model and operational models and curtailment prediction gets more sophisticated, so does the solar resource. And uh, that's, that's something where uh, even just recently we we've captured uh the impact of the, the smoke, right? Learning more mm-hmm. as we go along and, and see more, more instances where the resource is being impacted like wildfire smoke, putting those into the models like what's in our, our most recent model. So we're gonna continue doing that. And I think as, as Heidi and her team and, and How and his team take that focus in taking those feedback loops and, and incorporating them into producing better models the next five years is going to be great from a finance perspective there's going to be more trust built and and more uh, investors that have confidence within this a- asset class
0: all right solar warrior that's a wrap on today's conversation my profound gratitude to heidi skip and how for helping unpack this timely and valuable information what did you think perhaps you're sitting there contemplating the merits of the discussion what did we miss there's anything we got wrong I've posted the episode over on LinkedIn and tagged today's guests. So why not jump over there and share your thoughts with all of us? I'd love it if you'd leave us a comment and maybe even share it with your network. If you are eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with those social media links like that LinkedIn post, the book recommendations that we usually put in just about every episode and and much more, including a link to the 2020 risk assessment we referred to today at the blog on mysuncast.com. Just click on the show notes tab. Well, thanks once again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. How'd you like that? You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like you twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle